God, here we are before you, and I pray, God, that we will truly stand in awe, just as they do in this passage, astounded that the Messiah, for whom they long awaited, has now come upon the scene and made himself plainly known. Plainly known in an astounding way, with meekness and gentleness, but yet power that is indescribable. Thank you, God, that we, through the perspective of time and through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit given through this word, are able to peer into such things, things that prophets from long ago long to be able to see. We now see we're able to put it all together and be astounded at such a great salvation that is ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, have you, have you ever um, kind of seen maybe your sports team win a championship of some sort, and then your city throws like a great celebration, right? I mean, think of something just like over the top, glorious, if not really remarkable beyond description. Oh, let's just say maybe the 1998 Yankees, for example. Coming through the Canyon of Heroes from Battery Park up through Manhattan to, to the City Hall, and all the while, just the, the whole town losing their mind in raucous celebration for the greatest thing that they could have ever hoped to have happened. And here it was, before their very eyes, happening before them. I mean, it, it's that kind of fervor that we're about to see described in this passage, because it's, it's not just about a sports team. It's about their hope that has been hanging over them for thousands of years, and especially over the last couple hundreds of years, as the Jews have been an oppressed people, wondering when will the Messiah arrive? When will our time be? When will we throw off this yoke of oppression? When will we be so clearly God's chosen people? And he makes it clear that it's all about to happen. Well, here is where this begins. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And having said what? Be ready for, for, for when the coming of, uh, of, of his great coming of the kingdom. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill of Mount Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, oh, by the way, I forgot what I all had on here. I'm going to keep reading in a moment. But just to, to celebrate, this is total tangent. We'll be back on this in a second, but it's here, and I, I, a lot of you were there, but a lot of you weren't, just to see one other celebration. Hang on. Katie got baptized. And here it is. And a beautiful sunset right behind him. We live in a really cool place. What in the world? How cool is God? Okay, back to our regu regularly scheduled program. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Now, he's coming. Now, I want you to picture this. There's two rather distinct hills, rather pronounced hills. In 
uh, in, in the area right at Jerusalem. One is the Mount of Olives, and the other is the Temple Mount. And you have to crest the Mount of Olives, which is roughly the same elevation as the Temple Mount. And you're coming from Bethpage, from Bethany, which is on this, this backside of the Mount of Olives. You come to the top, and just as you get to the top, you are, boom, square eye level at the majesty that is the Temple Mount. The east gate is staring you right in the face. There is the, the temple itself. The, the, the great temple of Herod would have been the case at that point. Now it's the, the, the Dome of the Rock when you would go now. Uh, but, but there it all is. And the east gate staring you right in the face is the gate of prophecy through which the Messiah would enter. And for Jesus to choose this path to come over from the east and go over the Temple Mountain to head in is rather remarkable. But it's, it's going to hold even more significance as, as we read on here. So he says, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Now you hear colt and you probably think like Kentucky Derby. Oh yeah, it was a filly or a colt that won. No, 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 no. There's nothing majestic about this. There's there is no thoroughbred in this animal whatsoever. You, you're not intimidated by this cult. This is the, the male sire of just simply a donkey. And not, it's not just a donkey. It's a little kid donkey. Like if you got on it, sadly, embarrassingly, your feet would probably scrape the ground. And this is the steed that shall carry the king of kings and the lord of lords. Really remarkable. So just keep that in mind as you hear the word cult. Which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Says, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Yeah. It was the idea that this was the most august of all events, and they didn't even want the hooves of the colt to even touch the ground. And so as they had their cloaks, they spread it over the path leading to the east gate in anticipation with messianic fever of what was about to go down. Now, after a while, they ran out of cloaks. Uh, if they didn't, we would call this Cloak Sunday, I guess, instead of Palm Sunday. So then they began to put down them palms uh, a little further on. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, which is then called the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, Jerusalem East Gate, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. It was almost like a recounting of his triumphant journey through the last couple of years. And it's, it's a scene where it's like, you're going to make me lose my mind up in here, up in here, as this is going down. And then they begin to just burst out in messianic prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 118, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. My first point is simply this. He comes to conquer. There's something that we would miss not being a resident of the first century. And it is this idea, the idea of the triumph. And I'll explain it in just a moment. But what we're approaching is this gate. Interestingly, the Islamic uh, controlled Temple Mount now has blocked up that gate because they also know the prophecy. And they think by bricking it up, they'll somehow keep the Messiah from arriving. <laughs> it's a small-minded idea for sure. But, but nonetheless, not that same exact gate, but, but in that same spot, Jesus would have been on the Temple, temple Mount, down the Kidron Valley. But you notice that people don't greet him at the East Gate. Where do they greet him? They greet him on the Mount of Olives. And this is a huge indicator of what is being displayed here. It is called, in Roman terms, the triumphus. And a triumphus would have been one of the most remarkable events you would have ever viewed as a Roman citizen. It was an immense deal. It was the, the kind of the culmination of a foreign campaign by the Roman army where they were remarkably triumphant, where they conquered at least and, and vanquished at least 5,000 troops of the foreign enemy, were able to gain significant amounts of land for Rome, and in celebration of all that this occurred, of all this that this accomplished, coming back to Rome would have been the conquering general. Caesar had this, Augustus Caesar had this, and somebody else had this. His name was Titus. And if you go to Rome, and matter of fact, this is uh, an arch that, that I was able to take pictures of in Rome. Uh, this is the Titus Arch. And Titus was, was, this is interesting, it has nothing directly to do with Jesus, except to give us a picture of the, of the, um, the triumph. But inside of this arch, uh, this arch was erected in celebration of him arriving in Jerusalem, I mean, I'm sorry, in Rome, after having conquered Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD. But this particular triumph, celebrated wildly and recorded accurately by Josephus, talks of an amazing extravaganza, a, a literally, where, where we get the word pomp and circumstance, the procession of the triumph is called a pompa, where, where we get this whole idea of pomp. But some of it is pictured inside of the arch on a relief. And this is Titus in his chariot. He would have been standing on a box so that he would have looked all the more impressive. Behind him is a slave holding a laurel, a laurel of victory over his head. And he's also telling him something over and over again, which I'll mention in a moment. But you notice that he's being driven by four white, impressive steeds. But before him, in this procession, and they were, they were rather uh, systematic in the way that they had these triumphal processions. And first would come all the captive leaders of the vanquished army. Then... Uh, their soldier, I'm sorry, then their families, they'd be walking in chains, likely towards their execution in some sort of a Roman arena display. And this is the beginning of it, seeing the vanquished. Then 
their weapons, their armor, their gold, their silver. But then, like the really interesting stuff comes. Then would have been like a series of floats. And Josephus describes them as being so grand that the crowd were frightened that they might flip over, that they were so close to these floats, because they were four stories tall. And they, they were basically recreations of the foreign city that was conquered, or recreations of battle scenes on these huge floats. It's, it's like the Thanksgiving Day Parade, uh, MacArthur's return in 51 down the Canyon of Heroes, and of course, the New York Yankees 1998 celebration, all in one all coming down this triumphal procession. And, and as, as the triumphal procession occurs, here's a key aspect to it. It's four kilometers long, and it begins not inside the city gates, which would happen at the Capitoline Hill in Rome. It happens outside the city. And all the inhabitants of Rome rush outside the city to behold the triumphal procession. Where did everybody rush to Jesus? Same thing, outside the city. And, and, and that's one of the great indicators that what he was doing was God's triumph. But let me, let me show you what, what goes on here. But after you'd have all of these displays of, of either what Babylon looked like, then you'd have exotic animals in cages. You would have some of the finest tapestries, some, all the precious stones. Josephus writes that it looked like a river of flowing jewels coming down into the Capitoline Hill of Rome. And then after that, you'd have the Roman senators, the magistrates, all of the general's main advisors, and then, of course, the four-horse chariot with, behind him, the public slave, and then behind him, his children, his closest family, and the Senate themselves. And all the while that he is riding in this chariot, the slave who's holding the, the crown, laurel crown above his head is, is saying to him, Memento mori, memento mori, which in Latin is, remember you too will die, or remember you are only mortal. Because you, this, this person would have been upheld as a god. He is king in, 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 for the day, though not actual king, but also then given status of God, even until his death and even in his death. And then at the end of the procession, two white oxen and oxes, oxen, mises, mice, and, 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 these, and these oxen would have had their horns gilded gold, as, as they were, and they would have been a sacrifice to the great god Jupiter in Rome at the, at the temple there. And this would have been the procession, and if you were counted yourself so fortunate to have been alive as a Roman citizen when one of these occurred, it would have been the defining moment of your life. Even if you could have just marched in this triumphal procession as a conquering soldier, that would have been your badge of honor for the rest of your life, to have been so honored even as a soldier in such a procession. Nevertheless, to be the, what would be called the weir uh, uh, triumphalus, the, weird, the, the man of triumph, as he would be then known for the rest of his life. But look at the grandeur of this great triumph, and now compare it to Jesus. And what he has is a little donkey. The king of kings, the lord of lords, no limit to his power, the creator of heaven and earth. And what is it that he has? 
It's interesting that it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. This is what they were reminded of as Jesus came in this triumphal procession. And this was, make no mistake, Jesus' statement that I have triumphed. And I will triumph. And I come to conquer. I come to conquer sin. I come to conquer flesh. I come to conquer the world. And I come to conquer death. And so he does in this grandeur that is Christ, the Messiah, coming through the East Gate itself. When we see this is this is everything that astounds me about Jesus to be so heroic, so grand and yet so meek and so humble and to know that his greatest triumph is going to be through his sacrifice that occurs just a couple days later. Well, we read on as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you. Hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. On the other side of the Titus Arch is this relief. And this passage, so many scholars have tried to do mental gymnastics to prove that Luke and Matthew and Mark did not write before 70 AD. Why? Because they nailed what happened in 70 AD. And there's no mistaking it. This was written around 62 AD. And to in 62 AD... To describe the events that are, by the way, depicted in stone on this arch. What, what is that? That's the triumphal procession with the vanquished enemy. Who's the enemy? In this case, it's the Jews. And just as everything that Jesus promised through verses 42 to 44, in 70 AD, Titus came, built a siege works up against Jerusalem and conquered it. Tore it down, and in tearing it down, tore one stone from on atop of another. Completely destroyed. The only thing left is the west wall, the wailing wall. And it's only the base of that wall. And that's why it's such a sacred spot where you see so many that go to pray. Because that was the totality of the destruction that was visited upon the unfaithfulness of those who did not recognize the time of God's coming. I don't know if you recognize what's there. But that's the golden lampstand in the holy place of the temple. That's sacred right there, having been completely vanquished. And then what is that in front of them? It's an upside down table. You've got like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like ten guys carrying. And of all the remarkable three, four story floats that were in this triumphal procession that came through Rome, Josephus writes that the two that amazed people most were these two objects. Could you imagine? 
it was a pure gold table and a pure gold lampstand, but it was just something about the sacredness of those objects that caused everyone to stand literally in awe as the procession made its way through Rome. But they had, they had looted the temple itself and brought it to Rome. And interestingly, with the, the booty, the spoils of war that came from that sacking of Jerusalem, they used that money to build the Colosseum, the, the, the great place of, of, of later uh, Christian persecution that, that, that occurs. Um, an interesting side note, for sure. But here's, here's the terror of this, is that they did not recognize why Jesus had come. It, the, the word here, when he says, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word is episcope, where we get the word episcopal, but it's, it's all, it basically means scope. Scope is at the heart of it, right? Episcope. Uh, it, it, and epi is to, kind of a Latin version of that word would be inspection. You know, epi in scopus spect. And it, you did not recognize the time of God's inspection coming to you. That's a, a rather deep thought for us to even consider, knowing that Jesus has come, provided all of this, and now provides us, not only with all of this, but also God's inspection of us. It's not an inspection just waiting to like slap us down because we've done wrong. You see here the heart of Jesus all the more. He, he sees those that have rejected, and he weeps. Weeps out loud, in the midst of, of this procession, and it's, it's the oddest of all processions you could have ever imagined. Because rather than it being triumph at every turn, although there is triumph, and there's triumph for all of us, for anyone that doesn't respond to Jesus' triumph, Jesus weeps right out loud. That's how much he cares that every single one of us respond to what's about to go down through these final chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And how dearly he wants every one of us sitting here, as he inspects whether you respond or not, that he really wants nothing less than a full understanding that God has come among us. He has selflessly served us, and our only chance of what it is that he comes for for the next time, when he brings the new age, is to respond to respond by surrendering ourselves, not no longer holding to our own will, but now surrendering ourselves over to the great, pleasing, and perfect will of God. My second point, oh, I'm sorry, but there was one other triumphal procession. I, I just want to kind of meditate on for a moment. I don't know if you can see, is that, is that George, I think, there on the corner? Is Sanford, Andrea, if, if you can see this a little bit better, there's plenty of you. How many of you were you there on July 30th, 2004, when we had a little triumphal procession at the Hampton, at the Norfolk Airport, when we had our teens come back from this amazing tour de force of India to be able to serve the church, reach out to the, 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 the country, and basically make a lasting impact, not only on the Chennai church, but on ours as well. How many of you were there uh, back at that time? So look around. I mean, that's 11 years ago, how glorious that was. At that time, our church was just under 400 people. 250 of us went to the airport that night. All right, Daniel, you were, you were part of the triumphal procession coming in, weren't you? It was, it was so impressive. 
We had to say to him over and over again, remember, thou art mortal. <laughs> but what, a, what an amazing time that was uh, for, for us as a church. is Andrea, I, I mean Adria, Adria. But here we are waiting, waiting for you guys to come down the uh, kind of the, the, the path there into the, the lobby. And then as you begin to arrive, then we start to lose our minds, of course. And my, my Bluetooth is, is losing it. Uh, Lindsay Landis. Oh, there's so Michael and Jennifer. They were there on that trip. There's Kai. But it was tears, wild celebration at, at every turn. Uh, yeah, there's uh, uh, Brian. Brian is now back serving in the teens here. Um, Really amazing. Hold on. Somehow I can tell by that head who that is. I guess Charles. <laughs> Just as you'd be able to tell me. There's a young Clayton in the back. Can you see that? There's Daniel. Tanner. There, that's Colby, actually, in a headlock with Tanner. And then, of course, Elena. And Elena, if you look, if you look carefully, Elena actually has a tear rolling down her cheek right there just to see her, see her brother back home. It, it was one of the, the sweetest memories that I've ever had in our church. Of being, it's, it's Tony Williams and uh, Albert. And an uh, amazing, amazing. Oh, there's Mark Johnson in the back, too. See him in a red shirt like that? Um, but it really was one of, the, one of the sweetest memories. Why? There's, there's nothing like just raw celebration and the excitement. That's what they had in Christ. But that's what we have in Christ as well. He came to conquer and he did. And, and never forget, as Paul tells us in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 2.14, that he now leads us in this same triumph. In the same triumphal procession. As, as amazing as it would have been to have been a Roman soldier marching in that triumphal procession with all of Rome crushing in on you, cheering wildly. Guess what your walk is every day? It's exactly that. With a great cloud of witnesses cheering you on at every step. But he comes not only to conquer, he comes to cleanse. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day, teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. We know this scene. It's one of the great scenes of Jesus entering into the temple courts where he begins to turn over the tables. He makes a whip out of courts, drives out all those who are exchanging money and selling doves. Now, here's what's interesting about that. He comes to cleanse that. But to most who were there, that's a nuance. That's not some blatant sin. Because you were meant, according to numbers, to be able to exchange your money at the temple. Not at the temple itself, but before the temple. You needed to bring the temple coin to the temple. 
You needed to be able to bring the proper sacrifice to the temple. And what was going on at this very time? Passover. The feast of unleavened bread has just begun. This is what Jesus is coming in for. The feast of unleavened bread. And the law makes provision that if you live further than a certain distance from the temple, you can come to the temple and purchase a lamb for your sacrifice. So it's provided in the law. But yet, because it was happening in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which was meant to be an area for prayer, rather than an area to have some sort of expediency to make it easier for you to exchange your money for the proper sacrifice for the Passover, Jesus was that indignant over that activity. Now, it's interesting that in 175 BC, an event occurred at the temple... That was also a cleansing. And it was a radical cleansing. In 175 BC, before Rome had conquered Jerusalem, Greece had done so. And the general from Greece was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he not only conquered Jerusalem, but he profaned the temple. He took a pig. Not a kosher pig, because there is no such thing. And he sacrificed the pig in the Holy of Holies of the temple. But then Judas and Simon Maccabeus led a revolt to push back. And they successfully were able to rebuff this awful incursion by, by Gentiles seeking to profane everything that they held dear. Uh, And for, 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 Week after week, on went the, 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 the battle. And it says, but he expelled them from there and he cleansed the temple from its pollutions. On the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed. That's from First Maccabees, uh, which, which chronicled this event. Uh, You can see so many of the parallels, even in Jesus' coming, right? He comes not only to conquer as a procession, but he comes to cleanse, just as the Maccabees had come to cleanse of all worldliness that had come. But for them to come and cleanse, it's pretty easy to discern that a pig in the Holy of Holies is something unclean. But Jesus comes and he discerns that the way that the transfer of money for the proper sacrifice was going on was not clean. That's Jesus' expectation of holiness for us. Not just the blatant, but even these nuances, they mean that much to Jesus as well. He wants all the yeast to be removed. That's what happens during this day, the day of unleavened bread. You remove Anything that corrupts and all that you're left with is a bread of sincerity and truth. First Corinthians five says. And notice that as Jesus is doing this, nobody says to him, yo, 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 what are you doing? We can do this, right? I think they knew in their hearts that they had made a compromise. They tried to make it a bit too easy to do the religious thing. And nobody in any of the the three gospel accounts, four gospel accounts of this actually try to to stop Jesus from what he's doing. And I think, too, we've got to be 
in alignment with Christ at seeing the subtlety, which is not so subtle to Christ, of our our uncleanliness. The flirtation that occurs on a Facebook post, the flirtation that occurs with laughter at work, materialism that creeps in when there's a bit of a windfall and our first thought is, what can I get rather than what can I give? Perhaps a anticipated shame from sharing the good news about Jesus. Maybe we've cleared out an internet cache of history of where we've surfed all the while while God is examining our paths. We've not really cleaned anything except corrupted ourselves all the more with secrecy. Maybe it's deleting texts that we think is actually a cleansing, but but only a perpetuating. Um, I, I think if we were to look at the transcript of our conversations at home or in the car with our family, uh, it would it would be not just a subtlety, but but rather clear. Jesus came because he desires and he believes that every one of us is to be truly holy, truly clean. And that same kind of vigor that he brought to cleanse the temple is also his same passion that he has for every one of us to no longer be so defiled by the smallness of all that filth, but rather to shine like stars among this wicked and corrupt generation. You know, if, if... If we're the ones shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, here he comes in the name of the Lord. He saves, he saves, hallelujah, as he comes. But we've not cleaned our house. We're not very different from these Pharisees. Let's be a people that want the cleansing so that when we put up the number one Jesus foam finger and and, and shout to him, That we do so with gusto because we know it's with sincerity and with truth. And and, and one last idea here before we close out. He's coming again. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, when they describe the coming of Jesus, they describe a triumphal procession again. Do you notice that we don't greet him once he arrives on earth? But we go halfway out. We are taken out, courtesy of the uber angels that kind of come and escort us and and take us up into the clouds. And we meet him halfway outside the city gates, outside what will be the new heaven and the new earth. And as we're translated and transported up to meet him in the clouds with his procession. And his procession are 10,000 times 10,000 holy angels. And then we will join in that same procession. We're going to be in that procession. And we will be transformed. Even as we begin our our journey back into the city itself. Back into the new Jerusalem. Back into the regenerated earth. Romans 8 says all creation groans for this recreation. 
And as the earth is recreated and God, uh, Revelation 20, comes down to be with man and all is made new and we enter back in, then will be the greatest of all realizations of, of why we wanted to be cleansed, of why we wanted to recognize that God has really come among us, why we are so glad that this inspection has really gotten us ready and why, why it is that we live the way that we do. And even what's interesting is about eight years ago, I was at Jamestown and they were tearing down the church that was in Jamestown. And I asked them why at the time. And they said, because it wasn't on an east-west axis like all churches were at that time. And I, I knew why, because I'd studied it a little while earlier. And all churches had always been built at that time on an east-west axis where you face east. Why? Because of what Matthew 24 says. Just as lightning appears in the east and is visible even in the west, so will be the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. And, and it, what it does is it aligns everybody in the body of Christ as they enter into this edifice building into alignment of hopeful anticipation of the return of Jesus as the sky opens up as a scroll and there He appears with all the glorious angels that we live each day in that hopeful anticipation because it is coming. He really did come in 30 A.D., it really did happen in 70 A.D. that, that by, by those who didn't heed his inspection were, were uh, of course, then chastised so severely. And he really will come again. And let us be Christians that not only live in excitement of what he has done when he conquered, but also we live in hopeful anticipation of the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's my simple discipline I want you to practice this week. Every day, as, as you get up, to not only recognize what Jesus has done for you, but to decide that I'm going to go through this day in hopeful anticipation, aligned towards the east, aligned towards the appearing of the Son of God, that you live every day anticipating, anticipating the return of our King, and anticipating joining on in that triumphal procession. Amen.